Fearless Leaders. Hello, I'm Malcolm Triggs, and together with fellow writer Fraser Allen, I'd like to invite you to join us on a guided tour of some of the bizarre characters who lead the 195 countries that make up planet Earth. If you're looking for a barometer as to how civilised or uncivilised the world is, it strikes us that taking stock of the prime ministers and presidents of our nations is a pretty good way of doing it. But it's also quite troubling, because to be frank, and with just a few exceptions, they're a pretty rum bunch. So in each episode, we'll be looking at one particular leader, revealing what we found out about them through our diligent desk research. But because we're not experts in any of the countries of the world, apart from the one that we live in, which is the UK, we'll also be speaking to someone in each episode who can give us a more informed opinion on the nation and the leader in question. We hope you find it interesting and, in a perhaps slightly bizarre way, entertaining too. The second glorious leader we're going to explore belongs to what the US National Security Advisor under Donald Trump labelled an exclusive club of international tyrants, rubbing shoulders with the likes of Syria's Bashar al-Assad, North Korea's Kim Jong-un and, once upon a time, Zimbabwe's Robert Mugabe. He's credited with turning his country, once the wealthiest in South America, into a land of total disarray, marked by political corruption and persecution, soaring inflation and widespread poverty, all the while enjoying a life of luxury in plain sight. So Fraser, where are we headed today? Well, Malcolm, we're heading to a place which was visited by a Spanish adventurer called Alonso de Ojeda, I'm trying hard on my pronunciations. In 1499, he approached it in his ship and his navigator looked onto the land and saw these stilted houses constructed by the indigenous settlers. And it reminded him of Venice, of the, the houses there. And so they named this, this region Little Venice, which translates in Spanish as Venezuela. That's where it comes from. I had no idea. That is the well. That is the widely accepted and rather romantic view, but there there are others that say it's probably just derives from some indigenous indigenous name for the uh, area. But as my daughter was saying this morning, uh, isn't it a beautiful name? I can't think of a country that's got a more wonderfully flowing name. I mean, it would sound even better in Spanish, obviously. But Venezuela, just beautiful. It sounds like a, a soft breeze on a summer's day. So, yeah, we're going to Venezuela, but as we're going to hear, it's a troubled, sadly, a a troubled place. And uh, we're going to look into the life of Nicolas Maduro. So, Malcolm, do tell us about this chap. The first thing you have to note is the moustache, and, and this this is this this could quickly become a theme for for, for this podcast, couldn't it? Um, yeah, another another moustache and a pretty full figure as well. Um, if you've seen pictures of him, um, Nicolas Maduro, so apparently he's he's six foot five, um, wow. around two hundred and seventy pounds. Somebody's estimated in my research. Very dark hair, um, slicked back almost, um, and. Something I hadn't noticed, but if you actually look at pictures of him, the left side of his face is full of scars um, from a motorcycling accident. 
Um, so this is Nicolas Maduro, and obviously based on that description, quite a quite a, a sort of threatening, imposing figure. Um, but this is the, um, the president of Venezuela um, and has been since 2014 was when he was sworn in. Um, so Nicolas Maduro, born in Caracas, the capital of Venezuela in 1962, um, an unlikely politician given his youth. Um, he was a rock music aficionado at school um, and he considered becoming a musician um, and he actually played in a band apparently inspired by Led Zeppelin It's a bit reminiscent of Tony Blair isn't it? With his yeah, that's music. right of course <laughs> but yeah no, he um, yeah, obviously took a, took a different path ultimately, um, he became a bus driver <laughs> so um, uh, you know, after that he, he assumed a leadership position in a, in a trade union so the sort of start of his political aspirations um, and he was representing um, bus and subway conductors on this union um, he later joined a, what was a secret movement within the Venezuelan army led by um, a military man called Hugo Chavez. Um, and this this group basically set up a military coup. Um, they were very disillusioned with government corruption at the time. Um, and so um, this was this was all the while, as I say, uh, uh, Maduro was working as a as a as a trade unionist. Um, he later became sort of very good pals, if you like, with this Hugo Chavez um, and became um, Minister of Foreign Affairs under Chavez once once Chavez became Prime Minister after a, a successful coup. Um, and he, he sort of began at this point in his career to cultivate relationships with dictators around the world, um, which has to raise eyebrows. So he was he was courting the likes of Libya's Gaddafi, um, Zimbabwe's Robert Mugabe. So yeah, this this is really the sort of start, I suppose, of of, of Nicolas Maduro's um, you know Venezuela, if you like. Uh, as I said, he eventually came to power in, in twenty fourteen. Well, I've been looking more at the sort of general context of, of the country and it, I think it's a tragedy because it has so much going for it you know so, so many countries have a terrible lack of natural resources and so on but I couldn't say that about Venezuela it's so I, I didn't realize it I knew it was a big oil producer but um, I would have, if somebody had asked me what the who has the biggest oil reserves in the world I would have said I would have guessed Saudi Arabia or Russia it's not it's Venezuela um, so they made massive discoveries during World War II in a place called Lake Maracaibo, which incidentally is, fun fact, largest lake in South America. And uh, that prompted a very long-term sort of economic boom. And for for many years, oil was cheaper than water. I mean, this is one of the benefits for the, the Venezuelan general public. Oil was cheaper than water. It was about a penny a gallon. Um, <laughs> it, has, it has gone up recently. I, I think the last price I saw for it was 10 cents a gallon. But it's, that's still incredibly cheap. But, you know, I think as we're going to hear later on in this episode, the management of those resources has been absolutely uh, shambolic uh, in terms of making the most of it. Uh, huge issues with corruption. And uh, despite having all this oil, it's a place where it's actually quite hard to fill your car up with, with petrol, which seems which seems insane. Uh, and and this this. A lot, this kind of follows a similar pattern across the country. So, I mean, Venezuela also, I mean, in many ways, a beautiful and extraordinary country in terms of its its nature. So 
it's one of the most biodiverse countries in on on the planet and it's got an incredible number of endemic plant life and animal life that that you'll only find in in venezuela it's got quite a big variety of landscapes i think our guests is going to talk about this a little bit as well we kind of mangrove forest by the coast you've got mountains up in in the north you've got plains uh lots of islands as well you know in the, in the caribbean so it's a beautiful place and yet uh as sadly often follows the actual management of this land it shows very little respect for the issues of climate change that we faced and, and making the most of it and there are some some facts that got got here that um, each year okay, heading heading towards about three hundred thousand hectares of forest are permanently being destroyed for mining, oil extraction, and, and logging. So yeah, it was uh, the country was once pretty much one massive forest of native broadland trees. I mean, a long time ago, um, the vast majority of the people live in urban areas and just going back i mean in terms of where the country sort of came from it, it was originally obviously settled by the, the spanish and it was liberated in 1813 by simon bolivar who was born in caracas the venezuelan capital uh, and a great hero of south american independence he not only freed um venezuela he also freed colombia ecuador Peru and Bolivia, as you would expect from the, the name of the country, and he did all that uh, before dying at the, at the age of only forty-seven with, with tuberculosis. <laughs> the country itself, so to give you an idea of the size, it's similar to the likes of, say, uh, Egypt or Nigeria. It is population of thirty million people, a melting pot. You've got, as with much of South America, you've got the indigenous tribes you've got the descendants of the slaves from africa and you've got the, the spanish uh, big spanish influence and the, the culture is very much influenced by that spanish side of things but also the indigenous and the black influences come through particularly in food so malcolm if we're going to go for a little downtown walking downtown caracas now get ourselves some lunch you might like to have an arepa which is very popular it's a ground it's ground maize dough that is grilled or fried and stuffed with, it can be anything really. The national dish is, uh, again, don't, not sure how to pronounce it particularly, but pabellon criollo, which is pulled beef, spicy rice, and black beans. And something that differentiates uh, Venezuela, very one of the many things from Belarus that we visited in episode one, is you've got this big sort of melting pot of different cultures and histories and so on. And you've also got quite large numbers of immigration. So there's, there's a, a lot of people from China, yeah, people who originally came from China, Portugal, Italy, the Middle East. And as with other parts of South America, there's um, sort of German communities. Now, if you if you wanted, Malcolm, I could take you to a, a place in uh, Venezuela where you could, you could put on your old, um, what do you call them? <laughs> Lederhosen? Lederhosen, yeah. <laughs> Have some sauerkraut, some bratwurst, yeah. Enjoy some German umpa music. There's a, an intriguing place up in the mountains called La Colonia Tovar, which was built by German immigrants who lived an almost solitary life there for a long, long time. They're kind of cut off from the rest of the world. They, they built their houses in the style of German ar architecture. They made their own German food, spoke German. And it stayed like that pretty much until uh, World War II when the Venezuelan government became a little bit suspicious about what they might be up to and, and opened it up. And, and so the place is now integrated into Venezuelan society, but 
they clung on to a lot of their German heritage and it's actually supposed to be a, a lovely place to visit and, and live. And, and yeah, you can see they, they brew beer there according to the German purity laws. And of course, yeah. <laughs> the little <laughs> element for you. And Malcolm, question for you. What is the, the most popular sport in Venezuela? I think I know the answer to this. Um, is it baseball? It is absolutely. And down to really the, the influx of Americans who came in and helped them set up the, the oil industry and, Baseball already took off, and you know, unlike obviously, football is the big sport elsewhere in South America, but in Venezuela, it's baseball. Um, so, you know, there's so much going for the country, and as we're going to hear from our our guests shortly, you know, there's there's a lot of really great qualities about the people of Venezuela, the culture, the land, the the resources they have, but there's so much that's so unpleasant about it. I mean, the the at one point recently, uh, it was had the highest murder rates in the world, which is extraordinary when you think about it, and it probably still does. But the the Venezuelan government doesn't like to release crime figures anymore for obvious reasons. <laughs> and I mean, I, I found this astonishing. Really, it's uh, it's it's one of the world's most corrupt countries. There is an organisation uh, called Transparency International that publishes a corruption perception index every year. So if you take the figures from the past 10 years, uh, Venezuela ranks as the fourth most corrupt country in the world. Bloody I mean, yeah. that, that's amazing. Only uh, South Sudan, Syria and Somalia are ranked higher than that. So, I mean, that affects every aspect of life, doesn't it? Everything you do, you're going to be ripped off. There's going to be money, big siphon off, cr- criminal entities getting involved with everything. So it's depressing stuff. And, and this is a country that just two decades ago was hailed as one of the developing world's like great success stories, it, it, literally just two decades ago. And now, um, and I'm going to quote uh, an article from Bloomberg recently, um, there are apparently few places on earth as chaotic and dangerous as present-day Venezuela. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a country in total disarray. Um, and it's 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 had a spectacular fall from grace because, um, as I said, it it, it was it was a, it was democratic. It was very wealthy. I think it was the wealthiest country in in South America for for many years. As as you were saying there, as a result of its um, its enormous fossil fuel reserves or proven reserves, they say. Um, but ultimately, it's it's what um, is now known as a, a failed petro state, um, meaning that the country was. Heavily or almost exclusively dependent on its export of, of fossil fuels, um, although to be classed as a petro state, um, a country generally has to also be um, pretty corrupt politically. Um, hence, why the likes of Norway, Canada, and even Scotland, um, where we're all obviously heavily reliant on oil, wouldn't be classed as petro states. Um, but no, it's um, basically what had happened from from what I understand. Um, there was a huge boom um, in oil. Uh, the, the, the president of the time, as I mentioned, um, Hugo Chavez, had um, hedged his bets entirely on on, on this remaining stable. Um, and he ended up investing hugely in social welfare programs, in infrastructure, um, much to the delight of Venezuelans across the board. He was a hugely popular leader. 
Um, but under the surface here, you really have a, 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 you know, it's a risky strategy, I suppose, hedging your bets so heavily on, on this. Um, apparently, 99% of Venezuela's export earnings um, in, as of 2020 um, came from, from, from oil revenue. So, um, I mean, that's an enormous amount. <laughs> Um, it, 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 it's basically suffered from what's called the Dutch disease. I don't know. Is that is that something you, you've you've heard no, of? No, I've not heard of that. It's an Dutch interesting elm, one. Dutch elm disease. What's that? Is it the same as Dutch elm disease? Du- no, what's Dutch elm disease? <laughs> oh dear. I'm showing my age. It was a terrible uh, disease of elm trees that uh, swept the, the nation in the 70s and destroyed lots of forests. <laughs> well, I, I, could, I couldn't say whether or not they've got some of that as well, but um, but no, they've, they've they've certainly got um, what is known as the Dutch disease. So this um, this refers to Royal Dutch Shell, so just Shell. Okay. The, the company. It was their discovery of oil in the North Sea, and ironically, it was um, Royal Dutch Shell who first discovered oil in Venezuela. It was geologists working for right. Shell. Um, and basically, the, the, the Dutch disease refers to exactly what has happened in Venezuela in terms of they've hedged their bets on oil. Mm. When the going was good, the country was wealthy. But then when mm. it went bust, um, it wasn't just a case that, you know, they started losing money left, right and centre. Um, again, as I guess I'll, I'll go on to say later, um, all of the foreign investment dried up and crucially, the maintenance stopped. Yeah. And so the infrastructure couldn't cope. And now it's ironic because when you look at the price of oil around the world, Venezuela could be in a very good position. It should have been in a very good position um, to capitalize in that, but it obviously can't um, for, for, for reasons to do with the, the sort of maintenance of this. Um, but really, conditions have, have just worsened and worsened over the years in Venezuela, in particular since Nicolas Maduro came in, um, as I said, gone from being one of the richest countries in Latin America to ultimately suffering today um, what many would consider one of the greatest economic and humanitarian crises in, in modern history. And, you know, I don't say that lightly. It's it, it, We don't hear enough about this, uh, uh, you know, over here in the UK. Um some of the things that really stick out to me in terms of the situation in Venezuela, um, inflation, um, you'll have probably read it's, its currency is um, well basically worthless. Um, inflation reached, I believe, at its highest point last year, um, a staggering 1,946%. Um, <laughs> It's it's incredible. In, in two thousand, this is this has been a long-standing thing. But in two thousand and eight, five zeros were removed from the currency, and then in two thousand and eighteen, just four years ago, six zeros had to be removed from the currency, which effectively meant that one million bolivar, the currency, um, became one. So if if you had one million bolivar, you then had one bolivar. Um, so just to give you an idea of what that might cost if you went into you know what that would look like in a supermarket. Um, uh, we thought we had it bad during COVID here in the UK for toilet roll. Well, a packet of toilet roll um, in 2018 in Venezuela might have cost you somewhere in the region of two and a half million bolivar. Um, so yeah, you get, get an idea then of, 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 of its problems in terms of currency and, and largely as a result of the government just printing more money um, to try and, you know, <laughs> sort of mitigate the, 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 the problems there. Um 
According to a September 2021 survey, 77% of Venezuela's, um, I think you said 30 million there or thereabout uh, population, uh, live in poverty. So so a full sort of three quarters more than um, living in poverty. And a lot of Venezuelans have fled, as we'll hear from our guests as well, um, to neighboring countries, uh, Colombia in particular, but also to the United States. Um, so yeah, just 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 a, a really sort of tragic situation there in terms of of the economic, but also the political situation um, in Venezuela. Um, and as I said, it's it's gone from bad to worse um, under under Nicolas Maduro, um, our sort of imposing you know full figure in in, in the head of government. Are you familiar with Salt Bay? Yes, yeah, I am. That Turkish. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's a video on YouTube of um, Maduro, but this time um, he was on a, a trip to, I think he was on a trip to Beijing, but he stopped in Turkey and he'd gone to one of this Salt Bay's restaurants in Turkey um, and was filmed, you know, being served this sort of huge covered steak and he's smoking a cigar and, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's terrible. Sadly, while Maduro's tucking in to lavish steak dinners, a worrying number of Venezuelans are effectively starving, with many ironically claiming to be on the Maduro diet, a term coined after the president himself suggested they should skip a meal a day to counter rising living costs. Our guest today has first-hand experience of this. A proud Venezuelan, he fled his home country and settled in neighbouring Colombia, where thousands more Venezuelans continue to arrive each year. Jose, we're delighted to have you on the podcast. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about Venezuela as a country, its culture, its geography, and its people? All right. So Venezuela is uh, a country located in South America. Uh, even though we are there, we are in front of the Caribbean Sea. So in terms of culture, uh, we get a lot of influence of uh, the Caribbean. So we are people that were born and raised listening to salsa, merengue. You know, music is a huge part of our culture. Uh, people are really um, uh, happy and joyful most of the time. And even though many of us in Latin America in general uh, face a lot of challenges, uh, we try to face them with a smile all the time. So uh, any Venezuelan that you'll meet is going to be uh, a warm person. It's going to be welcoming. It's going to be very proud of the, the land that they live in. Um, especially they, they're, they're going to show that to, to anyone who's visiting the country. Uh, we are... Um, you know, we, we, as I mentioned, we are in front of the Caribbean Sea. So many of us, as a kind of a tradition, go to the beach uh, whenever we can, especially uh, at the very uh, start of the year in, in a, this sort of um, uh, routine that we have to perhaps cleanse most of the things that happened during the, the last, the previous year, we go to the beach and we like to um, go to the beach so that we can be with nature. Uh, we love it. We love uh, going to the beach. There are not many mountains, uh, although we have some regions that have the, the Andean mountains. Uh, perhaps you guys already know about the 
Andes. Uh, there also are some uh, uh, plains, you know, that, that there's nothing, not, not much going on there. Uh, but most of the population lives uh, close to the coastline and it only takes an hour and a half to get to the beach and, and enjoy yourself there. Um, as I mentioned, people are really joyful, really happy. Um, and they always try to face bad situations with humor. You know, satire was a, a, a great thing that we use, a mechanism that we use to cope with uh, the hardships that we're facing, not only here, but in, in the rest of Latin America. Uh, so yeah, that's basically who we are. Um, I can tell you a little bit more about, um, the food, the cuisine, you know, it's a, it's a mix of things that we got from, uh, the European immigrants, because uh, I don't know if you guys know that during the second world war and during the seventies, many European people, uh, came to Venezuela uh, because they, they found it as an option to perhaps accomplish the American dream. Uh, you know, the, the ones that didn't want to go to the States, they found in Venezuela a place that was, uh, like a paradise for them. So <clears throat> we have that mix, you know, uh, we have that European mix. We also have the Middle Eastern mix. You know, we have people that come from the Lebanon, uh, people who come from Iran, perhaps. And we also have some people that come from China and Hong Kong. So we have all that mixed together. And that gives a, a, a little extra flavor compared to the rest of the country in South America. So, yeah, that's who we are. When did you leave Venezuela? Because you're now in Colombia, right? So uh, when was it that you left Venezuela? And what were your motivations for doing so? All right. Uh Perhaps I can give you a little background of the situation that we were facing during a couple of years prior to me leaving. Uh, 2000 and 2016 was a rather harsh year for many Venezuelans. And I always like to tell to people who, who didn't know about our situation to look at our pictures, you know, check our Facebook pages and just compare the pictures of, of ourselves in 2015 and prior and see our build, right? Like the similar build that I have right now and compare it to the build that we had uh, during those years, 2016 and 2017. Um, it was very tough because the, the, the food was really scarce. Uh, hyperinflation started to, you know, go on during that time. And, uh, you know, sometimes you, 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 you were facing, um, you know, a, a, a position you were, you were in a position where you needed to choose between buying food or buying diapers for your kids. And, uh, sometimes you need to wait, uh, in a long line for more than four hours just to buy some food, some basic food. And there was a lot of stuff going on. Many people were using that uh, for their own business. You know, some people took advantage of the situation and they went to these huge supermarkets and uh, took spots um, in, in the line to, you know, 
enter the 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 establishments first you know the the supermarkets first and they buy out all the food and will be welcomed uh, by empty aisles you know without food the food that we needed so uh, I, i would have gone even earlier than the two years that passed but uh, you know um we by then we we just had our first child So um, that was something that also took its toll on, on him. You know, he, at some point he was declared malnourished because of the situation, how we were feeding ourselves. You know, the, the money wasn't enough for us to buy food. Uh, 2017 was especially harsh because there was um, some unrest. You know, people were taking the streets and even around our neighborhood there, there was um, a situation that took place in, in, in a week you know um, there were there were people who were breaking into businesses and, and, and stealing stuff there and then you have the police fighting them and using tear gas and we were in the middle of it I mean we were inside our, our home. Uh, but you could, you know, feel the effects of the tear gas. So the, the situation was really bad. You know, it, it was uh, unlivable. You, you wouldn't be able to uh, go and live a peaceful life. So I was just waiting to find uh, the, the optimal time for me to leave. I had to leave on my own. I left in 2018 and... The, the, the day that I left, the, the, the previous day, something happened. You know, there was, uh, there was this group of, um, uh, I, I wouldn't say they were part of the military, but they were trying to, you know, become something that would oppose or, or pose a threat to, to Maduro's government. Um, I don't know if you heard about Oscar Perez. Uh, He was he he was killed during a raid the day before I left, and I was like, man, yeah, I definitely need to go because there's there's no future here, at least politically, uh, there's no future here. Uh, the infrastructure is all uh, bad, and I need to do something. Sorry about that. I need to do something for my family, so I left. Uh, <clears throat> I'm here in Colombia because m most of my relatives live here. Uh, so a cousin of mine was uh, kind enough to welcome me at his home for a couple of months until I established myself. And uh, right around May, if I remember correctly, because I left in uh, January 2018, around May, that's when I was able to uh, bring my family over and start living the life that we're living here. So, yeah, that's what um, basically had me leave the country. So could I just sort of jump in there? Um, this is a big question, but Venezuela obviously has massive oil reserves and uh, should have the ability to be quite a prosperous nation. So how did, how did the country get into such a dire economic position in, in 2016? All right, uh, you actually are touching a, a, a really important factor there. Uh, the oil prices 
were going down during that time. Uh, prior to that, I think it was 2015 or perhaps earlier than that, uh, the oil prices were kind of high. And even uh, during the previous uh, presidential term of Hugo Chavez, uh, at some point he, he, he could benefit from uh, high oil prices. But there was a lot of over um, uh, spending and, uh, you know, by the time Maduro took over, he was taking over a, a government that lacked uh, resources because, um, you know, there was, as I mentioned, a lot of uh, overspending and nobody cared about taking care of the infrastructure. So when um, the, the facilities of, of the refineries started to fail, there was no money for the government to, you know, uh, fix the situations there. Um, perhaps you heard about certain uh, situations that occurred in, in some refineries, certain explosions that happened. Uh, and, you know, the, 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 um, the government wasn't able to take care of, of, of those facilities and and make them more operational once again in a quick manner. It took a long time for them to recover from that. Uh, so there's a lot of corruption going on to this day. Um, perhaps when you talk about Maduro, he, he, he's never associated to corruption, but the whole um, political party, you know, PESUF, uh, the Socialist Party in Venezuela, uh, and the National Guard is just a corruption machine. You know, they're always taking money uh, from um, from people, from budgets. And at some point, you know, all that money was gone. And they, I don't know if, if how true this is, but they started to survive with money from... Uh, side hustles that had to do with uh, uh, drug trafficking and, and all that. Like perhaps you have heard of that as well. Uh, so that's why um, the U.S. government started to impose these sac sanctions in 2016. And perhaps that's also something that contributed with the situation in Venezuela by, uh, back then in 2016. You know, there were s several const constraints in terms of um, what uh, the Venezuelan government could do uh, uh, with other governments uh, in terms of trade, you know, to, to get more money from, from uh, the commercial transactions with other countries. Uh, and yeah, that certainly had an impact on the situation. And oil, you know, even, even though we have lots of oil to... Um, to this day, because there have been other studies saying that there's still um, quite a lot of uh, reserves, oil reserves there. Uh, we don't have the capacity to extract that oil because we don't have to mo the money to, or, 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 or perhaps the government doesn't have the will to use the money that they have in order to extract oil. They rather just continue with the other uh, businesses that they have. So that's what's going on there. Where 
do you where would you say most Venezuelans stand in terms of of, of Maduro? I mean, you know, how, how popular or indeed unpopular is Maduro and his government amongst Venezuelans today? Well, nowadays Venezuelans uh, got tired of the political life of Venezuela as a whole. Um, we were faced with uh, lots of disappointments because of perhaps the, I, I'd say that, that uh, Maduro's government found a way to neutralize his opposition. And uh, in a way, he also found a way to neutralize the faith that we had for the political opposition that Maduro had. Uh, so right now, any Venezuelan, if you ask any Venezuelan, they would say, nah, I mean, I don't believe in Maduro. I just want to live my life. Um, but I don't believe in the political opposition either. They are in it for their own benefit. And uh, yeah, I, I guess that right now, nobody is going to tell you, you know, the sanctions, this is why uh, the situation is like this. It's something that of course, um, affected the whole situation. But if this was done to a different country that had a more or less um, stable economy, perhaps the impact would have been uh, lesser than the one that we received because prior to the sanctions, the, the, the economical situation or the financial situation in Venezuela was pretty bad. Pretty, pretty bad. And it, it was, it was um, not in part, it was due to the way the, the, the way Maduro handled things. Uh, Maduro is not uh, uh, a genius in terms of uh, uh, financial things, uh, financial strategies. Um, no one believes in what they do. And, and uh, the Maduro's government is always reacting to situations rather than planning ahead to see if there's a way for uh, people in Venezuela to, you know, uh, improve their situation. But yeah, yeah, whoever you ask is going to tell you the same. Like, no, I don't care anymore. If there are elections, Maduro is going to win. Uh, I'm not going to vote because the results are, are always the same. Uh, you know, right, right, right. Uh, around the time he, he, he took over, you know, the first time he won the first elections, uh, the, the political opposition was uh, claiming that there was fraud. And as I said before, you know, Maduro found a way to neutralize them and say, no, this is not true. Um, and that's the, the specialty of this government. They find ways to neutralize the political opposition. And uh, in a way, if you do that for a long time, and since it doesn't involve you directly, you know, as a, as a citizen, you start thinking, mm, well, there's nothing I can do. So uh, there, there's a lot of uh, apathy in terms of uh, the political situation. So no one's going to defend Maduro, uh, I assure you that. For those who still live in Venezuela, perhaps people that you know um, who are still in Venezuela. Can you give us an idea of what day-to-day -day life might be like for them today now that, you know, as you said, if you, you moved away from Venezuela in 2016, what's it like for the ones there in 2022? 
Yeah, the situation hasn't changed that much. Uh, people have to face uh, power outages all the time. You know, it's it's really weird to hear someone say that it has been a week. And um, the same thing with running water. Uh, it's really weird to hear someone saying, I have uh, running water 24-7. Uh, same with the internet. You know, those uh, basic um, services, they, they are still uh, in a in a poor situation. Uh, same with public transportation. You know, um, unlike the U.S., we rely a lot on public transportation. We even know many people have cars. Uh, but the, the ones that do have cars, they are faced with a situation of um, uh, lack of gas. You know, they, they go and try to get some gas for, for their vehicles. And they have to go to several places, several gas stations to find it uh, because there's no gas. You know, it could, it, it could take uh, days for them to, to finally get into a place that they could get some gas for their cars, their cars, I mean. Um, the situation with the health system is, has always been the same. It's rather bad. Uh, and what you see now is in terms of how people make a living on like, I'd say five or, or six years ago, uh, many people are turning into the, uh, in, into into doing their own business, in, into doing a side hustle, because uh, many companies just closed doors and left the country due to the situation, the economical situation, the political situation, the justice situation, even. Um, so you know, you have people that used to be uh, um, a worker in in an auto part company, some, something like Ford or General Motors, uh, they are not doing that anymore because those companies left or stopped uh, their production. And nowadays they are perhaps taxi drivers or perhaps they became handymen or perhaps they are just, um, you know, selling some food, street food. Uh, or initially many of them started to sell their their possessions to make ends meet. Uh, so many people are in that situation right now, you know, uh, unlike what you see that is promoted by some people that say, yeah, the situation is uh, becoming improving once again. Uh, that's something that's happening to the people that have access, that have always had access to money and that has always had this relationship with the government so that they could uh, open businesses like bodegas. That's something that we have over there, you know, these uh, convenience stores where people can find most of the food that, that they need, but the prices are rather high uh, or expensive. Uh, but the, the, the migration, the migration is still going on. I don't know if you guys have heard about a situation 
where Venezuelans are walking to places rather than taking a bus to go to to another country. Many of us, including me, um, don't have a passport. You know, a, a passport. Uh, our passports have expired. Uh, the government has been really inefficient in terms of providing uh, their citizens with with IDs and passports. So we have to do this, you know, under the table, you know, cross the borders that way. And many people are opting to go to the U.S. And when they do so, they go through a jungle that's located here in Colombia called the Darien jungle that is regarded as the most dangerous jungle in the world. Um, and you can you can check some videos about testimonies that people have put together. Uh, the people that have gone through that jungle, they, they have to walk for around five to, to nine days, you know, traversing this jungle. Um, they face many perils there. They, they actually see people uh, lying on the floor, you know, corpses, because, you know, this jungle is so dangerous. Um, they perhaps get bitten by, by snakes, or perhaps they just get robbed by anyone who's there. Um, there's also the situation with females and minors that get raped and killed there. So the situation is rather harsh. Uh, and as I, as I said, this jungle is not easy on anyone. So there are some people who just get injured and they cannot uh, walk anymore and they just stay there uh, to their deaths. So, you know, it, whenever you, you hear about those things, that's something that's telling you that the situation is not improving because if people are still fleeing from the country and, and are thinking about going through uh, the most dangerous jungle in the world uh, because of the situation that they are leaving behind, that tells you lots of things. It's, a, it's such a gloomy um, scenario, Jose. It's, it sounds so bleak. Do you have any hope personally? I mean, you, I, I know you said there's huge apathy around the political situation. Do you have any personal hopes at all about a way forward? I mean, what, what's it going to take to to make Venezuela a, a better place to live in again? Well, of course, uh, I always have the hope that things are going to improve. Um, the situations in, in big cities have somehow improved. I, I would say that the word that I, I'd like to use is uh, there's some relief in the infrastructure because there's less population. Uh, we're talking about 20% of the, the population that we used to have left the country. We're talking about 6 million people, around 6 million people has, have left the, the country in the last five years. Um, but, you know, the, the little hope that I have relies on this new generation of uh, politicians that come within this, um, the political party. Um, I, I think that the, the only way that this thing will improve is whenever this old uh, politicians or, or the ones have, that have always been uh, running the political party, including Maduro, Diosdado Cabello, Jorge Rodriguez, whenever they disappear 
from uh, the political uh, uh, situation that we have, either if they die out or, or something like that. That's when I think things are going to improve. And I tell you this because in my home city, in Valencia, which is a city that's pretty close to, to the capital city, which is Caracas, um, there, there are a couple of um, people or, or, you know, the, 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 the governor of, of, uh, of the state where the city is located is doing good things for, for the, not only the city, but the whole state. And the city mayor of that city where I used to live in is also trying to do good things. And this is something that, that you can see in certain cities. And I guess that's, that's the only way, but it's going to take a long while. I, I, I wouldn't say that in five years you're going to see that everything is going to be fine. It's going to take perhaps a, a generation uh, to see that things go back to normal in a way. But yeah, there's hope. There's hope. leaders. Uh, uh.